Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, you're in for a treat today because my guest on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Alan Ross. Dr. Ross is Professor of Divinity here at Beeson. He teaches Old Testament and Hebrew. He's been a part of our faculty since 2002, one of my all-time favorite teachers of the Bible. Every time I hear him, I learn something new. My faith is engaged. I'm challenged spiritually, and it's a joy to talk with you today, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, you've just completed a remarkable commentary on the Psalms. Three large volumes, more than 2,800 pages. I think you have written more on the Psalms than most people read in a lifetime. (laughs) Why the Psalms? I was in seminary, and I started studying them in class, and every time we had a class, the teachers were in the Psalms. Uh, I grew up in the church. I was familiar with the Psalms, but didn't fully understand them. Mm. They were beautiful. They had good lines in them. But until we started actually working with them, then I saw the content, the value. And the more that I studied, uh, the more I became aware of their importance in the life of the church, such as in the church up till about the 1800s, organized church. Um, No one could be ordained to any office in the church without committing to memory the book of Psalms and Mm. praying through them every two weeks. And it seemed to me if something was that important for the spiritual life of people going into ministry, then that was something that really needed a look. I started studying the Psalms, and most commentaries have found the favorites were given good attention. But there were others that the more I studied them, the more I realized if you dig— There's so much there that uh, needs to be preached and studied as well. I should have said in introducing you that you have a doctorate in uh, the biblical studies, both from Dallas Theological Seminary, where you did your basic seminary work, and also Cambridge University in Mm -hmm. England. Uh, In the preface, I think it was volume one of the Psalms, you refer to two professors at Dallas who meant a great deal to you. They will be known to a lot of our listeners, but not everybody. I wonder if you would just introduce both of them briefly to us and tell us about that encounter and why it meant so much to you. When I was in seminary, I really focused on Old Testament. I had a lot of Greek in college. came to seminary to study Hebrew and the Semitic languages. And the chairman of the department was Dr. Bruce Waltke. He taught an exegetical method that we were trained in. And one year, he offered a course called Hymnic Literature. There were only six of us in the class, my type of a class. And we were each assigned six psalms for the semester. We Each one of us would do the complete study or analysis of the passage and then the next week, preach a sermon. And so Dr. Walkie had his friend come in and help teach the course, and that was Dr. Haddon Robinson. Mm-hmm. And when a person, one of the members preached in the class, then Bruce would evaluate the exegesis, and Haddon would evaluate the exposition. We would normally, class met at 2, and we would normally be there till about 5.30 or 6. Mm-hmm. 
Funny thing is that Bruce, looking back on it, said he didn't think it was that good of a class. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody who was in the class, we actually worked through 24 psalms in there, or 36 psalms in there for the semester in great detail and yeah. in preaching. Yeah. And I think that formed all of us who were in there. We've had the privilege of having both of those great scholars, Dr. Walkie and Dr. Robinson, here at Beeson on several occasions. And we love them and have such great respect for them. Uh, you just used two words in talking about that experience, exegesis, exposition. We use these words all the time. What do they mean? Exegesis refers to drawing the interpretation of the text from the text, that you analyze the text, study it, and draw out of it the interpretation of it in context, the way it was uh, written, uh, that will be the more technical, analytical study of the passage. For a preacher, teacher of the Bible, that's only half the job. Hmm. And, and I mean half in preparation, too. Because the other half is the exposition, where you are going to take all of your findings... <clears throat> package them in in a way that is presented to people so that the theology of the passage, the meaning of the text, the application of the text is going to be declared based upon the exegesis. Easy to do exegesis and not exposition, and a lot of people do that. They just do the study of the text, but they don't spend time thinking how that should be presented either in written or oral form. A lot of people can do exposition, but they need to do a little bit more in the text to get the content. Mm -hmm. And so exegetical exposition would be to work through a passage in its entirety, the way it is written, trace its argument, understand the message, all the things that have to be explained, then begin to fashion it into a sermon, lesson, article that will be a clear presentation of what you have found. Not all the technical material will show up in that, but it will be clearly behind the scenes that you have done your homework, the meaning is clear, the relevance is um, properly explained. I should say that we try very much here at Beeson to connect these two parts of the preaching task, the teaching task, exposition, exegesis. I like what Karl Barth said. In preaching, we not only should preach uh, about the Bible, but from the Bible, which means we have to know the Bible. And here at Beeson, we put a great deal of emphasis on knowing the biblical languages. Now, I wonder if you'd say a little bit about why that's important in your view. The biblical languages, of course, would be the most precise and um, detailed source of your study. It's a, it was one of the difficulties I faced in writing this commentary because I knew an awful lot of my readers, pastors, teachers, would never have had Hebrew. When I was trying to explain, say, textual problems, I had to do it in a way to explain what was in the text, what it meant, what the changes meant, because I knew they wouldn't be able to uh, sit down with the text and sort it out. The biblical languages and Hebrew in particular, because people are less familiar with the contents of the old than the new, give us a more precise, detailed, and I think in many ways a richer understanding of the text. Particularly important in the book of Psalms, we have a problem with um, translations of the Psalms because most of them rely upon the 
translation of the King James, they won't waver far from it. I remember I was on one translation committee. We sent in a change, and the editors wrote back and said, don't change that. We've all grown to love it. (laughs) There was a real problem in translating the Psalms, uh, because they're poetry, in view of the understanding of the tenses. The Hebrew tenses have a flexibility to them, but a precision in context. And you can actually translate either one of them with an English present tense. And a lot of translations did that with the Psalms, which you couldn't say was an incorrect translation, because you can do that with the verse. However, it blurred the distinction of a Psalm where he, the psalmist, might be saying, I will praise the Lord because he did this for me, and when that happened, I prayed that, but now I'm praising. There's a lot of time shifts in the Psalms, mm. and if they're all leveled out to the English present, a reader won't know in reading a Psalm whether he's praying or in trouble or out of trouble. <laughs> and so I think the precision of the tenses was important. I think also the precision of the language um, poetry uses language and poetics and figures of speech, all that have to be interpreted within the culture. Hmm. And um, there are Bibles that will, I think, in a way, decode the figures. Uh, for example, it's even in the Book of Common Prayer, but in some Bibles, in Psalm 19, instead of saying, my rock and my redeemer, they will say things like, my strength and my mm-hmm. redeemer. Strength is not the same as rock. Mm. It may be connected, but rock, the figure, has more meanings than just the idea of strength. So if we tend to interpret, um, it will either change the meaning or narrow it. There is one passage that says "There's the wicked will be caught in their sins like a fowler in his net. Mm. And one popular translation said their sins will come back upon them like a boomerang <laughs> now in the world which would be more which would be better known the boomerang or the fowler in the net the fowler in the net is a totally different image you get all tangled up in your sins <laughs> the boomerang just comes back and hits you so you change the meaning yeah and i think with the precision of the text to leave it with the translation of the expression that is there try to explain its use in biblical terminology and uh, explain it so people understand the figure, it stays with them. Now, all of us know the Psalms are right there in the middle of our Bible, the largest book in the Bible, 150 Psalms. Uh, How do the Psalms come to be? Psalms cover about a 1,000 years of time. We have a couple of Psalms written by Moses. We've got some that are clearly post-exilic a 1,000 years later. Over the years... I think people who were inspired by the Spirit of God, most of them prophets, even the hymn writers and the musicians of David were prophets, they would write a composition, a prayer, a meditation, a praise. They had, as with most Old Testament writers, a mentality of text, that they knew when something they had written was more than just their own ideas, that there was something very powerful, they would deposit them in the temple for, in David's day and later for the Levitical choirs to sing. Over the years, they kept gathering together collections. There are early collections. 
Psalm 72 ends with the prayers of David are ended. Mm. But if you go further, there's more prayers of David. Mm. So that must have stood at the end of one collection and then later revised. In the final editing, when they had all 150, they did arrange them in the sequence of the history of Israel. Mm. So you had the first section are all really David and David's running. Then you move into the nation and its difficulties. When you get into the latter part of the book, it's more universal, what you'd expect coming back from the exile. That doesn't mean a psalm of David or Moses doesn't show up in the later, but the topics were put together. And there were lesser topics in there. So it is a merging collection over the ages. I was preaching at a church uh, not too long ago, and the pastor's a wonderful, wonderful pastor. He says to me, these students that we're getting, he's talking about some of our students from Beeson and other seminaries too, when they read the Psalms, they find Jesus Christ all over the place. And when I was a student, they never taught us that. They taught us to fly away from that, shy away from that. Say a little bit about the Christological interpretation of the Psalter. I think in, ed- in theological education, those are the two extremes. The, the one extreme is we don't want to see New Testament anywhere. And the other is, I think, to go too far. What we try to emphasize is that when you're dealing with a psalm and you interpret the passage, make sure you understand the meaning of the passage in its context and how it would have been intended and understood in those days. But always be aware of the possibility of Christological material that would be either typology, indirect prophecy, uh, something along that nature. If you push Christology into every psalm, you run into real problems. It's not there. I think one of the things we try to avoid is if you preach a sermon and it's all about Christ, and somebody in the pew is looking for that and comes up and says, I, I could have never seen that. Well, maybe we shouldn't have either. You know, it's <laughs> one of those problems. But if you're in a psalm and it's clearly talking about the Lord's anointed and he will rule, clearly Christ. If it's quoted in the New Testament, clearly. There are some that are not quoted in the New but seem very strongly to refer to Christ When they do, they don't necessarily jettison the meaning for the original context. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, there's only one psalm that is directly prophetic and has no connection to the original setting, which would be Psalm 110, Mm. because there the Messiah is at the right hand of God, and he's also going to be a priest. Which, of course, is quoted in Hebrews and several times in in the New New Testament. Testament. But no king in Israel could claim to be both a king and a priest. So they they tried to say, well, this half was added later and didn't apply. But mm-hmm. that's the only one. All the others, we'd have to be dealing with typology. When David writes Psalm 22, we know that it's quoted seven times for Christ in the New. That doesn't mean it isn't about David's suffering. But he is directed by the Holy Spirit in his writing Uh, to use figures of speech and hyperbole, which to him would be very elaborate, but they will become literally and historically true in Christ. Mm. So the Spirit of God is doing that. But there are many Psalms that you would have a hard time saying, uh, this is a prophecy of Christ or this is about Christ, because they were written for the faith of Israel and their worship. 
And uh, we can add to say, well, when we get to the New Testament, we have a clearer understanding of the teaching of this psalm. But to say it's in there when there's not a clue that it is, I think that goes too far. Yeah. Let me ask you this this text, uh, and the, probably the best-loved psalm of them all is Psalm 23. And these famous lines, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Is it wrong for Christians to see in that a connotation of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist? I would think so. I think that's really pushing it too far. You have You have three scenes in Psalm 23. The first scene is the shepherd in the field. The second scene is the host in the banquet hall. And the third scene is the Lord in the temple. Sort of an elevation as you Mm -hmm. go along. Uh, The expression preparing a table means the food on the table. In the presence of my enemies throws it off a little bit for being the peace offering in the temple or the sanctuary. Um, It's an idea that comes out of the prophets that even though you're besieged and people are trying to destroy you, the confidence comes that you can sit down because the Lord has provided you food to eat uh, and uh, a meal. And the anointing of the head is the gracious host who's welcoming you to the table. Nobody connects Psalm 23 in the New Testament uh, to communion. I think it would be a very difficult task to make that case. It's... it's um, it's the thing people like to do in ministry because they like to get to Christ, they like to get to the cross. Uh, but I think we create more tensions if we do too much of that because it will destroy people's confidence in reading the Bible. And the historicity that underlies the right the text itself. If, if they look at that and say, well, I could have never seen that, so why do I even bother? Uh, I think the preacher has the responsibility not only to give the meaning of the text in its context, but also to show how he got it. Mm. And if you just say, well, that kind of fits, table here, table there, meal, um, that's not a lot to go on. Let me ask you a sort of a liturgical question, because I'm a Baptist, and in, in our tradition, and not only Baptist, lots of Reformed Christians, too, believe that only the psalm should be sung in worship because they're the inspired Word of God. Hymns, they're made by human beings. So we've kind of gone past that controversy. A lot of us, there's there still some psalms-only traditions out there. But say a little bit about singing the psalms or in some traditions like the monastic tradition, chanting the psalms. They were music. They were written to be sung, either congregation singing or the Levitical choirs. We wouldn't like to sing them according to the instruments they had. And that would be very um, cacophonous and loud. And and they didn't have the melodies back mm. then. Uh, chanting, or if you don't mind, rap, would become <laughs> a lot closer to the way they would uh. do it. You get even in Gre- classical Greek, the storyteller singing Homer you know, to the community. It's kind of a rhythmic uh, chant to it. But they were to sing because in, in the singing, you are, you are elevating your voice, your focus, your concentration on the words and on the harmony with other people rather than just reading it carefully. Um, one of the things that drew me into uh, more liturgical worship was choral evensong in Cambridge. Mm. Because you would sit in the choir, 
that's in the cathedral area, and you'd have this huge psalm book open, just the words. And the choir would sing that psalm, and you could study the words as they were singing it, and, and you could sing along. It took them twice as long to get through the psalm. <laughs> but uh, it was the way that they elevated the language, elevated their participation, focused together. Uh, Stephen Ford has a book, Sel uh, Self and Salvation, is a chapter on singing, mm. where in singing you develop more unity and more of a deliberate expression than in any other way. You have to wait for the other people to sing together. You have to interface with the way they're singing, the way you're singing, and you're going to draw out the ideas longer, focus on them, feel them, sense them, because it's beautiful poetry. Down through the ages, uh, they became the hymn book. In the church that I grew up in, we had regular hymn books. It was Baptist, German Baptist. Uh, we had regular hymn books, but there was also a little hymn book that was just the Psalms. It was translated for hymn singing. There was no music in it, so we had to know what melody they were going to play. And you would sing that. It was at least one way of saying that everything that you are singing is 100% Word of God. Other hymns aren't necessarily that high of a percentage. <laughs> but it was one way also that we truly did learn the content of the Psalms. Mm. People remember the music much more than they remember our sermons and lessons. So if they, you grew up with these kinds of hymns, and if it's the book of Psalms, there are many books of Psalms out there that have musical scores written to them that churches could use. And I think it would be a great step, not backwards, but in the right direction, to sing more of the Psalms because it is um, the inspired Word of God. And in some ways, the return of contemporary music, as we call it, much of it is psalm-based or psalm-like, of varying quality, it has to be said. Uh, but it's a good thing to hear the words of the psalms being used in worship in that way, even if the music sometimes isn't as uh, exhilarating as it could be. Depends on the listener, I guess, whether it's exciting. <laughs> if you're used to, a ram, used to a ram's horde blasting, maybe it's okay. Um, I like your connotation of rap. The song <laughs> is rap. <laughs> it's, it, there was that rhythmic uh, chanting and uh, telling the stories and whatever. I think that um, with the Book of Psalms, they should be sung. A lot of the modern choruses will select sections from the psalms, and I, I find a lot of them will select like in praise psalms, the call to praise. Mm. And they'll sing that. But they don't include enough of the cause for the praise. Mm. Um, the chorus, uh, this is the day the Lord has made, people will sing that, but they don't sing the second stanza. If you just sing the first stanza, you think it's a nice sunny day. It's about the resurrection. Mm. And the rest of the chorus, which we never sing, is about the resurrection, which is what the psalm is talking about. So I think if we, I, I had a musician in the church I was working in once, told me, I said, why don't you just write more stanzas? Why don't, you, <laughs> why don't you fill in more of the details there rather than just singing that one over five times? But it's, it's a step in the right direction to be able to sing because then those passages will be uh, set in the minds of the worshiper. Mm. The Israelites didn't have Bibles. They had to, by memory, from mm. singing, 
and from hearing the Levitical choirs, uh, learn them. And then they could sing or chant along the way. We're almost out of time on this podcast, but I wonder, Alan, if I could ask you to read Psalm 133 for us, only three verses, and give us a brief exposition about what this wonderful psalm is all about. Psalm 133 is in a section of the psalms which is called the Pilgrim Psalms. The focus would clearly be the journeys to Jerusalem for the great festivals. And this little psalm, very brief, comes towards the end of it. What we have to do when we're reading a psalm or studying it is to determine fairly quickly, the more you study with the psalms, you can do it quickly, what the subject matter of the psalms would be. This psalm reads, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. We have an easier time with this psalm because it's short and not so complicated. (laughs) Uh, The subject matter is the brothers, we would mean by that the believing community, uh, dwelling together. And that's the topic. We would have to ask when and where that is intended to be. If it's just living in the land with Jewish neighbors, uh, that may or may not be good. It seems that in a pilgrim psalm, and especially with this psalm talking about how it's in Jerusalem, in Zion, where the blessing of the Lord is, that we're probably talking about they're going up to Jerusalem and dwelling in Jerusalem for the great festivals. That would be a week in the spring, a week in the summer, two weeks in the fall. And um, they're dwelling together in the presence of the Lord is described as good and pleasing, good in the sense that it is edifying, life-giving, appropriate to the faith, and pleasing means that it's appropriate, it's fitting. We have plenty of examples in the Old Testament where the people of Israel dwelt together and and either um, were obnoxious, fought, <laughs> couldn't stay together. But when we look at this passage, if they go to the sanctuary They have to come repenting, expressing their faith, developing the kind of spiritual harmony that you would expect, and that would be very good and very pleasing for them to be there together. The comparisons enforce the idea that it's got a religious scent in mind. They're dwelling together. It's like the oil that is on Aaron's head, Aaron representing the priests, the anointing oil of the priests, which is sanctifying of the oil, so that the priests would be there, sanctified to do their duty, to sanctify the people through the sacrifices. So the people coming in there to dwell are going to be people who have gone through the ritual, through the liturgy, been duly sanctified, at peace with one another, forgiving one another. That's the healthy spiritual unity. But the emphasis in verse 2 and also in verse 3, is coming down. Mm. It's the oil coming down on the uh, beard of Aaron all the way down to his collar, a lot of oil. But the coming down reminds us that the anointing came from God. 
This is not something that is a man-made enterprise or ritual. Uh, God ordained it. God is setting the priests aside for them to sanctify the people. So it's all from above. The other illustration in verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon being the high mountain in the far north, very heavy with dew and rain. Its dew never came down to Mount Zion. It's too far north. So I would think he's saying that the dew that is like what you find on Mount Hermon, uh, heavy dew, very heavy, which would water the earth, that also comes down, and it comes down uh, from heaven. God provides that, and it's going to come on Mount Zion. Uh, people don't realize it, but Jerusalem gets more moisture, more rain in a year than London, England. Hmm. just all runs off and goes hmm. down into the Dead Sea. But there is plenty of moisture that God gives in the rainy season to bless the people, which is why they're there in the sanctuary. They've come to give thanks, to pay their tribute, to pay their tithes, to bring their grain, whatever it is. So here you've got the spiritual blessing from God, which sanctifies them, and the physical blessing from God that gives them their abundant and wonderful life, both coming to be a blessing at Mount Zion, so that the people who are there are the devout believers, rejoicing the spiritual and earthly provisions of God, sharing their faith with one another, singing all these songs, uh, being right with God. That's the glory of the unity of the people of the faith. It's not necessarily just the community that live in at home, but this is in Jerusalem where the blessing is. How good and pleasant it is when the people of God live together in unity like the oil on Aaron's beard, like the dew of Hermon coming down from above. Wonderful exposition of a great jewel of a psalm near the end of the Psalter. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Alan P. Ross. He teaches Hebrew and Old Testament here at Beeson Divinity School, our beloved colleague. He is the author of many books on the Bible and Scripture, most recently, a three-volume remarkable commentary on the Psalms published by Creekle Publications. And even more recently than that, we didn't get to talk about it today, a new commentary on Malachi. Malachi, then and now, published by Weaver Books. Thank you so much for this conversation, Alan. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.